0: Well, good morning again. So we'll be in Micah this this morning, chapter six, verse eight. Um, I've really been blessed by just my study on this topic of justice and mercy. Uh, if you want to turn there, we'll be focused on that chapter and we'll kind of spend a, some extra time, particularly in verse eight. So, you know, uh, most of us here today have been parents or are currently parents. Um, and with parenting, we have to resolve some pretty interesting and challenging uh, situations. Uh, I was thinking about this, um, thinking about things I've, I've heard from my kids when we're kind of in the midst of this struggle of with each other, the whole sibling thing, and, and there was a phrase that kept coming to my head that the kids said a lot, and it's, that's not fair, <laughs> That's not fair. Um, you know, kids have this built in sense of fairness, don't they? I mean, it's something that we all have, and we can see this at a very early age. And as adults, we have this sense of fairness, don't we? Uh, the sense of justice, getting what we deserve. But you know, this goes both ways, doesn't it? Um, when we've been wronged, we're all about justice. Um, fairness, when we think we've been wrong, we can be like our kids. Maybe we don't stomp our feet or whatever, but we, inside we say, that's not fair. That's not just. But what happens when the tables are turned? What happens when we have done somebody else wrong? Then fairness or justice quickly becomes something that we're not that crazy about, right? I mean, it's like at that point, we really don't want justice. We want mercy. Because when we are the offender, we know it's going to cost us something. Well, today in Micah, we'll see how justice and mercy are not two opposing things, but they're a deep and beautiful part of who God is. And with God, justice and mercy exist together. And as Christians, we're called to embrace both justice and mercy. So with that brief introduction, let's look at the historical background. Just kind of set up Micah. So Micah, whose name means, and I love his name. I mean, when we're naming kids. I mean, this is, this is beautiful. My name, I think, means something about a spear. And, uh, it's interesting that I, I pitched. So I don't know how my parents knew, but the Lord knew, right? Um, I wasn't that famous, by the way, but anyway. <laughs> so, uh, His name means who is like Jehovah. What a name. Who is like Yahweh? You know, Micah was kind of like us. I mean, I don't know all of your backgrounds, but he was from a small town. He was a country boy south of Jerusalem. The town was called Moresheth. So Micah was called in the 8th century, and he was called to be a prophet. And his span of ministry went several decades. He went through three kings of Israel, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So Micah was also contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. Now, we've heard of Isaiah, right? Sometimes Micah is like, I'm not sure about what that's all about, but we've heard of Isaiah. And just a little aside, when we talk about prophets, major and minor, Micah is is one of the minors. But minor doesn't mean minor in significance. It means just they had less to write. It's a smaller book, a smaller message. So his message was to announce judgment upon Israel For basically three areas, social evils, the way they were treating each other, corrupt leadership, and idolatry, spiritual unfaithfulness. That's all that means, spiritual unfaithfulness. So these judgments were culminated, would culminate. They hadn't happened yet. He's announcing them to the destruction of Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom. So at this point, after Solomon, his two sons, uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they divided the kingdom. So you got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So the city that he's really pronouncing these judgments is the capital of the northern kingdom, which is Samaria. But he's also talking the judgment will come against the southern kingdom, capital city of Jerusalem. So with that, let's look at the context of the text. So like I say, I'll be focusing on verse eight. So in chapter six, we first see a conversation between God and Israel. So we see something very similar with this in other prophets like Isaiah, where God brings Israel into something like a cosmic courtroom. Okay, God is the plaintiff. Israel is the defendant and he has a beef. He has a complaint against his people. These were called covenant lawsuits. And so. Not a good thing to be called into court by God, okay, that knows everything, the judge of the universe. You're not going to get anything past him, right? You can't claim ignorance. You can't claim even the intents of your heart. He sees that, right? Where God is expressing a complaint against his people, which, what is that complaint? You have broken my covenant that I made with you. Remember Moses? You know, think of Charlton Heston, (laughs) the Ten Commandments in the movie, throwing the tablets down. All the laws associated not only with the ten, but all the other commandments. So this covenant that they had made with under Moses, they had broken that. So we see in verse 3 and 4, chapter 6, God starts and he's first asking, what have I done to you? How have I become a burden to you? It's like God is pleading with his people, almost like a father to his children. Like, how have I become this burden to you that you would just... Ignore me and ignore my laws and ignore this covenant that we made. So God then proceeds to remind them of all the things he has done for them. All the good things, the way God has helped them. He says in verse four, I brought you out of slavery in Egypt. He gave them Moses as their leader. He gave them Miriam. He gave them Aaron as leaders. He led them through the wilderness. Remember that 40 years? Kept going around Mount Sinai, Right. And he kept feeding them. And it said that even their shoes didn't wear out. He took care of them. And then the conversation switches back to Israel. And their response to God's pleading. Show me what I've done wrong. I mean, what a a humble. This reminds you of Jesus pleading with his people. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. How I long for you. As a mother, mother hen longs for her chicks, right? To take you under my wings. So then their response comes. And it's very enlightening the way they respond to God. They say, God, what do you want from us? And I'm paraphrasing. This is not a translation that you would read. (laughs) This is paraphrasing what is being said. What will make you happy is essentially what Israel is saying. Do you want burnt offerings with my best calves, which was a part of the sacrificial system? And then they start going over the top. It's almost like, okay, what will get you off our backs, basically? Do we have to give you a thousand rams and ten thousand rivers of olive oil? I mean, this was like even the kings. I mean, nobody would give this. It wasn't asked to just these endless sacrifices. It was very prescribed and it's basically saying, "Okay, God, what do you want? And they got to the point where they even said, do you want our firstborn? Indicating sacrifice, child sacrifice. The very things that God hated and abhorred that were done in Canaan, child sacrifice, they were even offering that as if God would be okay with that. So, what what does this indicate? Well, Israel have, number one, they have short memories like we can have, right? They didn't remember all that God did for them, all the, the sojourning in the wilderness, the deliverance from bondage of 400 years of bondage and slavery, feeding them in the wilderness. Protecting them for other kings that wanted to destroy them when they came in. So they have short memories, but they also have hearts that are straight from the Lord. The fact that they would try to buy God off, even with child sacrifice, was a telling sign of spiritual decline. How low they went, how low they had gotten to. So with that brief historical and contextual setup, let's read the text. Chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, or O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So we will see this morning in our text what God requires from us. It's up here on the screen. To love outwardly, which is to do justice. To love inwardly, which is to love mercy. And to love upwardly, to walk humbly with our God. So first, God requires that we love outwardly to do justice. So... Let's just step through these phrases. He has told you. He has shown you, oh oh man. This is not something that they didn't have an awareness of. There's something that God had already revealed many times to them. Not only through Moses, but through the many prophets that he sent, right? Israel cannot claim they didn't know or give the excuse, I've never heard this, okay? They'd heard it many, many times over and over through the prophets, through Moses, And this word man or mortal is the word where we get the word Adam. This is mankind. This requirement is not just for Israel. This is for us. He's speaking not only for that time, but he's speaking to us. And don't we know scripture says that these things are written for history, but they're also written for for us, for our admonition and our instruction. So we can't be excluded from this, right? When we read the word of God, it's going to come to us. It's not just pages... Words on a page, it's not just ancient history. No, God who dealt with his people then still deals with his people now, doesn't he? God is also reminding Israel that they are men when he says mortal. That's what that man, word, mean. You're transient, you're temporary. I'm God and you're not. And I think about movies, I think real quickly. uh, Has anybody seen the movie Rudy about the football player that was trying to get into Notre Dame? And he goes to the priest. I mean, he's struggling. He wants to go to Notre Dame. He's lived his whole life to be a Notre Dame football player. And he goes to a priest. And I remember this line. The priest says, he says, well, you know what, Rudy? You know, one thing I can tell you, there's only, I've been a priest for 30 years or whatever number, big number. And he said, there's only two incontrovertible facts I can come up with. Number one, there is a God. And number two, I'm not him. And that's what he's reminding through the prophet. I'm God, and you're not. My word matters. My covenant matters. And you need you need to heed what I'm going to say. In fact, chapter one, chapter three, and chapter six. Guess what? It begins with hear, listen. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Listen. Take heed to my words, because consider who's speaking. And what is good? And we've been talking about this. Dal and I have been talking about this. How do we know what is good? Israel had become confused about what good was. They had even got to the place where they flipped what was good and evil. They loved evil and they hated the good. They called evil good and good evil. And We see that today, some of them, don't we? Where does that come from? It comes from just being away from God. Even as God's people, we can get to that point in lives, can't we? Where we get confused about what is good and what is right. God requires goodness to come from our hearts as a proper response to God and his goodness. So it's interesting. It's not a coincidental. What did God start out with in this whole covenant lawsuit, this complaint? He reminded them of his goodness to them. And out of of a response to that, that's what he's asking of us. Remember what I've done for you. Remember who I am to you. And let that be your motivation to do what I've asked of you. Consider, my goodness, remember who I am and what I've done. So we're going to move to this word. And this is a big word, guys, justice. It's the word mishpat in Hebrew. It means to act justly. And, you know, there's one way you can really tell when God's trying to drive a point home, drives an idea home. And when he uses words, he uses them on purpose. And not only the way he uses them, it's the number of times he uses them. This word is used over 400 times in the Old Testament. So I would say that since God used it 400 times, he's stressing the importance of the word. So it's very important that we spend a little time here and understand. And particularly in light of today and what we see this whole justice movement, right? So we need to spend some time. We hear a lot today about justice, don't we? I mean we get worn out with justice. But it's normally combined with adjectives like social or racial or environmental. So how as Christians are we to navigate with these ideas, with these with these movements, with ideas? And I just want to say a few things here. So one, First, any time you add an adjective to justice, you make it something else. You, you twist it, you pervert it. As Christians, for instance, we are about social justice. In fact, relating to one another, the second half of the Ten Commandments are all about how we relate to one another, right? Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not bear false witness. That's all relational things. Those are social things. So, for instance, when it comes to the poor, we are to help those who have truly are truly poor. They've been treated unjustly. They've been robbed. They've been cheated. They've been defrauded. They've been abandoned. Widows, orphans. But not all poverty is because of injustice. Is it? Some people just don't apply themselves. Social justice, as used today, says just because you're a part of a certain group, you have been treated unjustly. So what we see today, particularly in the church, and we see it in the world, we hear it, the cancel culture, right? But now it's made its way into the church. Well-intentioned people attaching themselves to, say, social justice movements without seeing the underlying ideology behind the idea. An ideology that I can't, I'm not going to spend time on. We could spend many sermons on this and teachings. It's an ideology that that sees perceived injustice as fed by a narrative, an agenda that all people deserve. Not only equal opportunities, but equal outcomes. So you see the difference there? We don't all have the same abilities. We don't all have the same talents. There's no way we're going to have all equal outcomes. You know, I I mentioned I was a pitcher, right? My dad wanted me to be a cardinal pitcher. He started me in the yard at three years old throwing a baseball. And I have a nice little scar right here for the rotator cuff surgery I had later. I'm not upset because I didn't make a cardinal pitcher. Uh, I'd love to be Nolan Ryan. I'm not mad at Nolan Ryan because he he pitched seven no-hitters. One thing, I'm too short. Another thing, I could only throw 80-something when I needed to throw (laughs) 90-something. I just didn't have the ability to to reach that level. i reached a certain level. Based on my ability. And that's fine. I'm good with that. But this paradigm, this ideology says that you're not only giving people equal opportunity, which is perfectly good and fine. We have every opportunity in here, don't we? That's why people come here. They flood to this country. But that doesn't mean equal outcomes. So just remember, any time you add something to justice, it gets twisted and it takes away from biblical justice. So with that, what is biblical justice? Okay? And this is where we see in this text and the words that God uses and the way he describes them and what they point to. Justice and righteousness in Hebrew are very close to each other meaning. In fact, they are the really the same word group. And so they're considered one attribute of God, even though they're two. You know, we've got two words, justice and righteousness. But in Hebrew, they're so closely intertwined. And if you think of righteousness, what does that mean? Well, the first part of that, what is right? What is just? What is fair? Wayne Grudem, the theologian and professor in his book on systematic theology, he defines justice, righteousness as God always acting in accordance with what is right. There's that word again and is himself the final standard of what is right. Remember what Abraham said before he was going to torch his nephew's town, Sodom and Gomorrah? Shall the God of the earth, of the universe, do what is right always? Yes, he always does what is right. Because it flows out of his very nature. God will do what is right. Because that's who he is. That's who God is. He's just. He's right. He's the judge of the universe. He's good. He's holy. He's not like us. He's not motivated by selfishness or greed, or he doesn't have these underlying agendas. God is God. He's always right. He's the perfect judge. If you ever doubt that, and we'll get to this, focus your eyes on the cross. So what is this saying? When talking about justice, we must first start with God and not man. We have to start with God. Justice is impartial, it's proportional. Think about it. The punishment fits the crime. If you look at the law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, if somebody comes up to me and punches me in the mouth and knocks my tooth out, am I going to go up to him and gouge his eye out? No, it's proportional. I might knock his tooth out. No. We're not going to do this, Christians, right? Turn the other cheek, right? Uh, that's what I mean by proportional, OK? It's proportional. It's impartial. It's impartial in that, you know, lady Justice, she's blind, right? She wears the blindfold? She's got the scales, and she's got a sword. So when somebody stands in front of justice, you don't see status. You don't see that person. If it's a king or a pauper, you don't see that. You don't see if they're poor, if they're rich. You don't see their ethnicity. It's impartial. And it's proportional. And it's an extension of God's holiness and purity and perfection. He alone is perfect. He alone is right and just. Always. Always. If you look the word up in the dictionary, justice, what we should do in heaven, you have the picture of God there. (laughs) Justice is not determined by what we think or what we feel. We're in this feeling culture, right? This visual culture. It's not by what we think or feel. What we think is just or unjust. But it's what God says is just and justice flows out of the nature of God, as I have said. So socially, it means to live lawfully according to God's prescribed and reveal, revealed will in matters of life and relationships. So he's already told us he has shown you, oh, man, what is good and what the Lord requires. How has he done that socially? Well, I've already touched on this. The second half of the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't kill. That's all about us. Right. That's all social things. Don't commit adultery. And the basis of this judgment is the law of God, which is an expression of his righteous and holy character. That's what the law reveals. It reveals who God is and what he's like and what is right. Biblical justice is always based also upon merit and reward. We see this in Romans 13, don't we, when it talks about government. God establishing government. It's instituted by God and we are to be subject to it. But why? Because it's an expression of God's Nature is an expression of this justice that flows out of God. Laws are prescriptions of what's right or wrong and is carried out or distributed through human authorities. And that's why we need to submit ourselves to human authorities. Because like what Paul writes in Romans 13, he says, be subject to the human authority because these are established by God. Now, think about when he wrote this in 60 A.D. somewhere. Who was in charge? Nero. Nero. He killed his own mother. He burned Rome. It says he played the fiddle, right? He was fiddling while Rome burned because he just wanted to rebuild it. He thought, you know what? I don't like the buildings here. I want to build this legacy in my name and all these monuments and buildings. I'm just going to burn the whole thing down and I'll blame the Christians. (laughs) This is the guy in charge when Paul wrote this. Subject yourself to all godly authority. Now, with that, laws are there, but they can be perverted, right? So the rule of thumb is if a law forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, then it's a whole different thing. But we are to submit ourselves to the the governing authorities because they are instituted by God and they reveal the character of God, what is right and what is wrong. And you can't have true justice without God. So what we see going on today, if you don't hear God interjected now, they can twist that. But if you don't hear God as revealed in scripture of what is right and wrong, you can't even have justice because it starts with him. It comes from him. It's revealed by him. Determining ultimate right and wrong cannot be decided by finite and fallen creatures. God has shown us what is just. And I thought about this, too. Where does this all come in? This idea that we can determine what's right and wrong. Well, think about the very beginning. What was the first lie that we believed? What was the temptation? So God said, you've got the whole garden. You've got all that I've given you, all this beauty, all this beautiful fruit, all things to eat. But he said that one tree, there's the law, right? Do not eat of that or you will die on that day. What did the tempter say? God's not God's not being fair. <laughs> He's trying to keep something from you because he knows when you eat of the fruit. You will be like God, knowing good and evil, knowing right and wrong. You don't need God to tell you what's right and wrong. You can decide what's right and wrong. And don't we see this played out in our world today, throughout the human history? I will determine what's right or wrong. The first lie that we swallow. And we continue to swallow that. And we see this anarchy in our streets. What is it? It's kind of like the judges during the time of the judges. All these phrases in the word of God that just stick in your head. In that day, every man did what was right, what he saw right in his own eyes. But only God can determine what's right. Only God can reveal what's just. And he has. So back to Israel. So this outward justice was a train wreck in Israel. God was angry because the people, especially the leaders. So this this pollution, this corruption not only affected the people in the in the government, it affected people in the in the religious community. Princes, prophets and priests, they were all corrupt. They were abusing and cheating their own people. So let's pick an example. I mean, this was just horrendous. So one example, God had distributed land in Canaan, right? By tribe and by family. So you had these families that had small pieces of land. Well, two or three years, and we can relate to this. Well, not that our sustenance is so tied to our crops, but back then it was directly. So two or three years of bad crops could put somebody, a family, in a bad position financially. So what was happening? Well, these people were coming in, their own people. These were called robber barons, land barons. So basically what they do is they buy up this land that these people couldn't take care of and pay for and sustain themselves. Pennies on the dollar. And so they'd either subject these people, the very people that owned the land that God gave them as an inheritance. They would either enslave them to work on the land or they'd kick them off completely. And they basically made them homeless. This was not only unjust to God's people, it was unjust to God himself. Why? And I never really thought about this. And I heard Pastor uh, Piper talk about this. The greatest injustice was not only to the people, but directly to but also indirectly and and even unjust to God. How is this unjust to God? Well, unjust in that Israel had violated the law of God. Thou shalt not steal, which is an expression of the very nature of God, who God is. Justice, think about it, is giving someone their due. OK, based upon who God is, what does he deserve? You remember when they came to him with the taxation question? And they said, should we give this tax? And he said, show me the coin. And and he said, whose uh, image is on the coin? He said, Caesar. what did he say? I love this. write a song about this (laughs) somehow. Um, Whose image is on the coin? And they said, Caesar. And he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render to God the things that are God's. That image of that man was stamped on the coin. But guess what? When you look around at things created out of nothing, The beauty and the complexity and the intelligence. God's stamp is on everything. It all belongs to him. And that's where they weren't getting this. They were not realizing that this all belonged to God. That this land that he gave to the people was something that God did. And they were just basically disrespecting God by disrespecting his people they were not giving god his due the reason israel was failing miserable and their ability to show outward justice to each other was because their hearts were far from god and we can get that way can't we god's people had strayed so far from him they had no clue what was right and wrong they were clueless it's kind of like when jonah went to nineveh and i thought about this it said these people didn't know their right hand from their left i mean they were clueless But those were pagans. We're talking about covenant people here. They know God. They know his law. They had really become blinded by their greed and selfishness. The deceitfulness of sin. And this lack of outward justice was due to a people whose hearts had become hard and cold towards God. Have you heard that phrase, cold heart, cold hands? They go together. They go together. If your heart is cold towards the Lord, your heart's going to be called towards other people. I know it's a reality in my life. So this leads to the second dimension of love that we are called to, which is inward to love, mercy. Another beautiful word. Oh, this is an amazing word. It's the word hesed in, in said hesed in Hebrew. This is God's covenant love. And it's used over 250 times. It means faithful love, God's steadfast love, unfailing love, loyal love. I love that. Loving kindness. When you see those words, most times it's this word. has said. This word mercy, as we think of others towards others, is really kindness. Towards God, it speaks more of a loyal love. I love this verse. It's in Chronicles. It says, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro upon the earth, looking for those that he may show himself strong on their behalf, whose hearts are loyal to him. This is the loyalty that God was looking for in his children. This loyal love, this faithful love. But what makes this unique to our faith is not just showing mercy or kindness. It goes a step further. It says by taking great joy in doing it. Loving mercy. And why are we called to this? Because God is like this. God is like this. As we jump ahead to the next chapter, in chapter 7, it says... And this is that name. This is Micah's name. This is the word. Who is a God like you? Chapter 7, verse 18. Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. That is who God is. That's why we're here today. He delighted to show mercy to each one of us, to draw us to himself. So put another way, it's the love that won't let you go. And I'm, I'm always, Charlie and I have talked about this and, you know, playing guitar and singing and songs. And, and uh, sometimes we relate things to songs a lot because just our exposure and thinking about things. And there's an 80s song that came to mind. and I, I'm wondering if Charlie remember this. Kathy Cercoli describing this Hesed this faithful, loyal love. The name of the song was called Stubborn Love. Listen to these words. It's your stubborn love. That never lets go of me. I don't understand how you can stay. Perfect love embracing the worst in me. How I long for your stubborn love. That's that said. that's that loyal love, the faithful love that God has towards us. Now, you might be saying, these two things seem at odds, right? Like we started. How can justice and mercy be together? How can they coexist? How can you have both? And how is God asking us to do both? Well, actually, justice and mercy are those two beautiful attributes of God, and they both form a perfect unity within his character. And Think about this, guys. The way justice and mercy come together is the heart of the gospel. It is The good news that we're to be about. If you want to know what the good news is and say, go share the gospel. Think about justice and mercy. How these two things seem worlds apart. But in God, they come together. And how do they come together? At the cross of Jesus Christ. God's justice and his mercy were demonstrated by Christ's death on our behalf. And like any other religion or moral system, God found a way to satisfy, to not compromise his justice and still show his mercy. (laughs) Praise the Lord. I mean, if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet, as my grandma used to say. And what motivated this is God's delight in mercy. Mercy. Even with the wicked people, God desires for them to repent so He can show them mercy. Even for the anarchists, even for, uh, the terrorists, you know, even for the, the most wicked Stalin. I mean, pick a name. Even for the wicked, God desires to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. Listen to the prophet Ezekiel say, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, I am not pleased. Am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live the sun and rain fall on the just and the unjust because God delights in mercy and how far short I fall when I look at somebody and I think you deserve judgment When they've offended God first and he shows them mercy, he delights to show them mercy. He will spread his arms out on a cross to die for them. His very enemies. And I get mad when somebody cuts me off on the freeway and I want to chase them down. I didn't say that. Don't judge me on that. God delights to show mercy. So as believers, we can act justly and we can love mercy through what? The new birth. We have a new DNA through the new birth. We have been given a new nature, as Peter talks about, that gives us the power to be like our father. I don't have to be like my dad. I love my dad. He's shown me a lot of great things, but he's a sinner just like me. I have his DNA. But guess what? I have my father in heaven's DNA to delight in mercy. Mercy. Because I have experienced his mercy and I've been given his nature to show his mercy. So we've seen our need to love outwardly by doing justice, to love inwardly by loving mercy. Now, lastly, God requires that we love upwardly to walk humbly with our God. So what have we seen in the text so far? It's how to walk with others. Now we're going to see how with whom to walk. So this word for humble, unlike the other two words, it's very rare. It's only used one other time in Proverbs. So we think of humble as lowly and, you know, almost like a doormat kind of thing, but in a good way, just humble and lowly. But this word actually, in the way it's used here, the meaning is wisely, prudently, thoughtfully. He's shown you, a man, to walk humbly before your God. This word humble has a horizontal and a vertical part. On the horizontal, it means to be mindful. There's that wise wisdom thing coming out. To be mindful of others. What does that mean to be mindful of others? To realize who they are. That we all come from the same family. Adam and Eve. We all come. God created man and woman. And from them, we all are related. No matter what we look like today. And we're all created in the image of God. We're all image bearers. And Christ died for each one of those image bearers. He loves them dearly. That's what we need to be wise about as we treat each other. This also means not strutting around with our own sense of self-importance. Kind of like, a, I like chickens. I do. (laughs) They're funny creatures. Especially a rooster. You know, just the way it struts. It's just hilarious to me. We don't need to be roosters, okay? (laughs) We don't need to be strutting around with a sense of our own importance. And I know as men, we struggle with that, don't we? So does this sound like someone we read about, this not considering yourself to be wise, but also this sense of humility about towards others and being wise towards others? It reminds me of somebody. Doesn't it remind you of somebody? It said that Jesus came not to be served, but to be a servant. Even as God in the flesh, now this will blow your socks off if you really sit and let yourself think about this. The creator of the universe let his creation put nails in his hands and his feet. The creator of the universe humbled himself, got on his knees, and washed people's feet. Have you ever washed somebody's feet? I did it one time, and I hated it. We did it in a marriage class, and I had to wash this pretty little lady's feet over here. I did not like it. Well, I'll tell you what I didn't like. I didn't mind washing her feet so much. I didn't like her washing my feet. I felt very uncomfortable with that. And you remember what Jesus said to Peter when he came to Peter? And he said, I'm going to wash you. And Peter said, Lord, may it never be that you wash my feet. Remember what Jesus said? If I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me here. Because I'm showing you something. As I am to you, you need to be to others. But you need to receive this mercy and grace. That was the point. I think it was pride. I think that's what I'm struggling with, having this little lady wash my feet. It takes humility to receive God's grace and mercy. Because it puts it outside of our ability and our control to make ourselves right with God. The founder of the Salvation Army, General William Booth, once sent a telegram to the officers around the world to remind them of the main focus of their work, the Salvation Army. Beautiful Beautiful organization. The telegram contained only one word. And that word was others. And that single word captured the foundation for the entire organization. Others. This is what humility, walking humbly with others and with God. So that's the horizontal. On the vertical, walking humbly with your God. Not not going about life alone. Walking with God as your companion in dependence and trust and reliance upon God. You know, I like John Wayne. I do. I mean, I make her watch these movies over and over. Real Lobo, Real Bravo, El Dorado. <laughs> they're not good for my my spiritual life, I don't think. I mean, there's some obviously. Man of integrity, justice. Uh okay, we can have a long discussion about that. <laughs> but a very independent, self-dependent kind of guy, he got my gun, you know, but um that's not really the picture here. It's, it's walking with God, independence and trust and reliance on God. And here's where wisdom comes in. If God is just and merciful, in order to walk together, we must be of the same mind. I have to have the mind of God in this, in terms of just and merciful. And how do we get that mind? It's a new way of thinking about ourselves and others. We must first come to God ourselves, and we draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. It says, Israel had forgotten who God was and what he was like. So bottom line, guys, and I'm going to land this plane here. We can't do justice until we are made just or righteous. And we cannot love mercy until we have first received mercy ourselves. And have you experienced this mercy? And another way to look at mercy is help. Helping someone in their distress. Has God helped you in your distress? And the deepest need you have is the need to be forgiven of your sins and being alienated from God. We can't be like God until he has become our God. That's why he says, walk humbly with your God. It's personal. It's not the God of the cold religion like the Israelites had kind of said. We can just buy this God off, get off our back, and then we're going to live the life the way we want to. It's not like that. It's just the opposite. We walk and we talk with him every single day. Because he's there for us and with us. And he wants to walk with us and help us. So do you see something in our text? Do you see how the covenant that Israel is called to with all its rules and regulations and laws and 613 of them could be boiled down to something as simple as to love God and to love others? Does this remind you of something? This is the new covenant that we're called to in Jesus, the law of love. So let's quickly, just a few questions to application, how we can apply God's word. How are you loving outwardly? Do you treat people fairly and considerately? Are you mindful of the reality that how we treat others reveals a lot about how we love God? How are you loving inwardly? Are you going through the motions with God and others? Doing things out of religious duty and to impress others? Or do you take joy in helping others and being kind because God has been so good and kind to you? Remember what he said? Remember what I've done for you. Let that be your motivation to do good, to be good. How are you doing upwardly? Are you walking daily with your God, your God? Is your faith personal such that you look forward to spending time with God daily in his word and in prayer? communicating with this God that loves you. This God of mercy and justice and kindness. So in conclusion, justice and mercy, they do go together. In fact, God has done something very amazing through His Son. In our minds, God had a dilemma. Not in God's mind, but in our mind, God had a dilemma, didn't He? He delights to show mercy, but He is holy and He must judge sin and injustice. How can God do both? How can He satisfy justice and And show mercy. And here's where, as I said earlier, the good news comes in. The most amazing news imaginable. God in Christ has both judged our sin on the cross of his Son and granted us forgiveness as a free gift by faith in Jesus' finished work on our behalf. As John says in his Gospel, speaking of Jesus, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the power, to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Justice and mercy meet together in Jesus Christ, as John says. And I love this. The psalmist says it so beautifully when he writes, justice and mercy kiss. And Jesus' cross is where that kiss took place. Praise the Lord. If you haven't already, will you receive this, this mercy, this loving kindness, this loyal love? That must judge sin, but he delights to show mercy. And he delights to show mercy to you today if you only come to him and say, I need your mercy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, of your great love and mercy. Your mercies, it says, are new every morning. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. Thank you for this amazing good news of how you, in, in, your, in your beautiful way, an omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving nature, could somehow bring justice and mercy together for us in the person of your Son. We thank you, God. Help us to always draw near to God. Come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may have mercy and find grace in our time of need. And we come to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. All